What does the story of race have to do with the story of Christian faith? Brian Bantam is a systematic theologian who teaches at Seattle Pacific University and Seminary. We sat down to talk about race, culture, and embodiment. His recent book is entitled The Death of Race. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Brian, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, it's great to be here. So you confess in the introduction to your book that you did not want to have to write it. So can you tell us that story and why there was so much resistance caught up in that? Yeah, well, I so my first book, Redeeming Mulatto, was about, about race and interracial identity and... In a lot of ways, I felt like I had said most of what I was thinking about race in that book. And I had been teaching a lot about it and was frankly kind of exhausted even by conversations of race. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then there was Trayvon Martin and, you know, every successive summer after that, um, something new and then exonerations and um, and I found myself kind of furiously uh, doing these Facebook posts that were like like 500 words and and getting caught up again and again in the comments and, and, and all of that and at the same time realizing that so many of my students were just not just didn't really know what to think of any of this. Um, and I have three teenage boys, and and they're trying to think about what, what this means. And eventually I realized that um, all of these thoughts needed to go somewhere. So I wasn't going to be able to get rid of them. I was thinking about them constantly. And and so this idea, so I got approached about the possibility of, of, of doing something accessible, something that... Um, everyday folks could read and for me really at the end of the day I wanted something to give to my kids Um, I wanted something that they could read and say that wait a second Christian faith has something compelling to say that can help us make sense of the world that we're in it has that feel to it too this kind of confessional feel I read uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates Between the World and Me this summer and when I picked up your book I thought oh is this a Christian doing a similar thing where yeah. you're kind of writing for your children and sharing a story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was, I think Coates's book came out just as I was kind of in the middle of mine. And I started to realize, oh, wait a second, I'm kind of offering a certain kind of response or a different kind of perspective. Also, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time was I mean, just an incredibly profound book to me. And I still think I actually still don't think that Coates's book quite matches up to Baldwin, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but kind of between those two, I kind of the question I was really asking was, what does it mean to kind of articulate something of who Jesus is and who we ought to be in this moment, in a way that's not only clear but hopefully beautiful and a way that you can maybe feel in a different kind of way. So I'm going to ask you to read an excerpt from your book. Uh, would you be willing to share that with us? Yeah, it's from the very first chapter. As our lives entwined, I began to feel the currents of race flow around us, and I was undergoing a conversion of sorts. I could not name it at the time, but when I was 19 and began to read the history of my body and this word race, and its children, white, black, I began to see the way I had been its unwitting disciple. I followed its precepts and sought its appeasement. My desires, my loves were shaped by it. 
To become black would require a conversion. So there's this kind of awakening that you have in your own story where you become aware of race, right? Would you be willing to share some of that journey? Yeah, I mean, I think as as a black mixed-race kid who visually is ambiguous at times, um, the way that um, it was really, it was always clear to me that black folk knew I was, I was some, I was, I was part black. So there was always be this kind of nod of recognition. But at the same time, there was always a kind of ambiguity to me. Um, and so my, whether it was with my mother and, you know, walking through the mall and you kind of get these strange looks or um, the kind of constant questions of what are you. So in a way, I always knew I was different, but growing up in a predominantly white home, in a white neighborhood, um, there wasn't a kind of rootedness necessarily. Um, to say that I was black was really to simply say that my father was black and it didn't have song or history or food kind of underneath it. So for me, um, what that also meant was that whiteness and all of the things that kind of come with it in a lot of ways filled in the gaps there. And it wasn't until I started to kind of become more deeply connected to black folk and black histories that I started to realize the ways that my story was kind of caught up in those stories, but also the ways that had been kind of problematically shaped by ideas of whiteness. And so I really, it really was this kind of conversion moment where, you know, you meet Jesus and all of a sudden you realize that there were all these patterns in your life that were problematic and you say there has to be a different way. And so you start looking for that way. Is there one particular thing in retrospect that stands out as um, a particular aha moment? Um, I mean, there were really two, and I, and I talk about, a little about these in the book. Um, so one, when I was probably 13, 14, and uh, my hair had gone from being straight to kind of really, really curly and tight, and I didn't really know what to do with it, but and I started liking girls at this time, so I knocked on the door of, of, a, of a girl that I kind of sort of liked, this little white girl, and the her father answered the door and basically said, my daughter's not going to date a black guy. And I kind of looked over my shoulder, wondering like who he was, who he was who talking is this to. Black guy? Yeah. And so to kind of have that that real personal, visceral refusal made me realize that I wasn't whoever it was that I thought I was, um, and that these people who I thought were maybe different than me were like me, or I was like them, and and I have I was going to have to figure out what that meant. But then, really, about maybe t- about ten years later. When I first go to seminary um, at Duke University Divinity School and well, the kind of orientation weekend, and some representatives from the Black Student Union um, came up to me and said, "So we're gonna we'll see you at the fish fry on Sunday," and I was like, "The fish fry?" It's like, "Yeah, come on," and I was like, "Well," so in my head, I'm like, "Am I black enough for this?" And and I think they must have seen that on my face, and they just said, "One drop rule, man. One drop rule." Mm-hmm. And of course, that the rule being was used for exclusion for so many years, right? So one drop and you couldn't get this job, couldn't come to this school. But here I saw a kind of reversal of that rule, which meant that you're in. And over the course of those next two or three years, I discovered the the plethora of ways in which one could be black and and also the responsibility that that, that 
required of me to live into that. And, and so in a way, I saw both exclusion and inclusion in these kind of confusing moments. So you claim essentially that race is not something that is an inherent thing. You say mm-hmm. that race is a story. So when you think about the Christian story and the story of race, how do you see these things relating to one another? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so here, the idea that it's a story, or in my first book, I talk about race as a kind of form of discipleship. Um, and so in a lot of ways, death of race and redeeming mulatto are very much related, um, trying to ask the same question from slightly two different directions. But to say that it's a story is to somehow account for Yes, it has race is basically invented, right? So you have um, European men who are encountering dark bodies all over the world, trying to make sense of who they are. And so in, in the attempt to articulate their own selves, they articulate whiteness as the defining color of like characteristic of who they are and therefore need blackness as as a way of reinforcing or creating that. And so then what happens? But you tell a story about how do these differences come to be and what do they mean? Um, But of course, like any story, it shapes us, right? At one point in the book, I talk about the story even of my father and the ways that um, the kind of story I tell about his conversion and then my conversion to faith and how him having cancer and and through that process he kind of became a new person and um, restored relationship with my mother and with me and then much later I have these memories of of him during when he was sick and he wasn't a saint and yet that story that I had told myself about his conversion, about my conversion, had very real shaping power in my life. And, and so I think race is something like this. It, it's, it was a story that a few people told about these differences and how those differences mattered. But those people who told the story had the power to make the story come true. And... And really that's the question is like, how can we both account for this fiction, but also account for the differences and in some ways the cultural particularities that grow out of it in ways that um, honor who we are. And I think in a lot of ways, this is very much the Christian story. I mean, we have this person, Jesus. Stories grow about who he is. Some of them are fantastic. Some of them are very true. But who we think he is, the story that we tell ourselves about who he is, shapes who we are. Um, And so those ways, race and faith are, in a lot of ways, intertwined stories. And our stories are imbued with all this meaning and relevance and and shapes the the way that we see the world and therefore act in the world. Um, Why was discipleship a helpful lens to help think about this? Well, I think in a way, um, so in Redeeming Mulatto, I talk about um, race as a, as a kind of religious kind of force, a religious phenomenon that has whiteness as a notion of transcendence that is really even, that even white folk are trying to live into desperately, right? And, um, and it's a kind of freedom and a kind of sovereignty that they imagine for themselves, that there's a kind of liturgy or law, right? So you, you can't sleep with this person, you can't live with that person, that person can't work with you. And then a kind of sacrifice that um, death is necessary in order to maintain those boundaries. So whether it's lynching or whether it's um, police violence, we see this all over. Um, and so discipleship is a way of trying to account for the ways that on the one hand, 
we're formed by things even prior to our knowing, right? So um, God comes to us. God an- announces God's presence to us in certain ways and um, tells us who we are, um, shows us who we are. But at the same time, we have to respond. We have kind of agency. We have decisions. We decide what we ought to do, and and we wrestle with what we should have done but didn't do. Um, And I think race is fundamentally this kind of formative thing where we're formed into imagining ourselves in a certain way. But But at the same time, we're making constant decisions, choices, conscious and unconscious, to reinforce that story um, in some ways. Uh, There's one point in your book where you talk about consciousness and 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 thinking through as you begin to see system uh, systems of race and and realizing how uh, complicit a lot of it is. people entering into these systems without much awareness but it's encouraging to think that we can be made aware mm-hmm. of the systems we inhabit and the narratives and our place within those narratives at one point you talk about the creation story yeah. which might be fun to kind of talk through yeah so you want to talk about why that's a helpful narrative to consider in this particular conversation yeah well really part of what i'd hoped to do um really even before before this book was write a, a kind of different kind of a different kind of systematic theology. It was a, a systematic theology that's kind of grounded, that's material, embodied, um, embodied, <laughs> yes. And and that was really the kind of what I was planning on doing, and that's part of the reason why I didn't want to write a book on race because um, I wanted to do kind of other things. But at the same time, the more and more I can, I kind of come back to this, and maybe it's just because I'm a systematic theologian, but it's wait a second, there's a, the Christian story that we've been telling has been fundamentally lacking. And essentially we fast forward to the cross, get through the resurrection, and really what that's done is, is underwritten an idea of faith as a kind of hyper-spiritual afterlife that we have to somehow discipline our body and hold on as tightly as we can till we get there. And so for me, the really question is, the kind of the question ultimately is, well, if God wanted to make us in God's image, why do we even need bodies? If God is not bodied, if God is spirit, then what's the point, right? Why not just be ethereal spirits floating through everlasting and, and not have any kind of need? But the bodies are necessary. And so what does it mean to kind of go back to the beginning and begin to ask ourselves this question? And so for me, it starts with creation. Like, what are our bodies for? And what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And so what did you find there? What are our bodies for? Well, for me, it, I, I think it's this idea that, um, I mean, this is just a, playing a little bit with Bonhoeffer here, just to say that um, we're kind of a, confronted with limit, right, um, in kind of being seen with the other. But I wanted to kind of press this a little bit further and say, well, limit is is bodiliness, right? It's really wanting to eat right now, but the but the food that we ought to eat is you know, 10 miles down the road, which means I have to walk, right? Or in the store, in the book, I talk about kind of 
Adam waking up in the morning and, um, you know, the first thing he does is eat this banana or I can't remember what the fruit was, but, you know, and, and he can just imagine the rest of his life eating this banana down by the stream and isn't life going to be amazing. Then he falls into this deep sleep, wakes up and there's this other person here who's not like him, but is like him. And he says, Hey, you know, why don't you, let's have a banana down by the stream. And she says, that looks disgusting. I think I want an orange at the top of the hill. And then now, that's what it means to be made in the image of God, is to have to actually live with these differences and different desires and ways of seeing the world. And that in the midst of those actual, those mundane daily bodily encounters, we come to discover something of who we are, um, both its mystery and its givenness. And this is everyday life um, and, and every, and all the ways that we live. Um, so let's make that big jump from the creation story to the resurrection story, because that seems really important to to consider. So what connections do you see when we're thinking about race? Like how is resurrection a helpful lens? Or in what ways has it been problematic? Because you stated that it is sometimes a problem to just rush to resurrection yeah. and just kind of pretend that that's the only place we can live. Yeah. Well, I think for me, I mean, the the resurrection, the beauty of it is both the the tactile particularity of who Jesus is, but then also the confusion and mystery, right? So at one moment, um, you know who he is because of the words that he says, right? But visually, you you didn't recognize him, which seems really confusing, right? Mm -hmm. But then in other moments, you see him walking down the road, and that was your friend. That's the face of your friend, right? Here he is walking and healed, but still bearing wounds, and so to me, the resurrection is this kind of image of the fact that our particularity remains in some form or fashion, right? That um, our story, our hurts, our, um, the pain, the violence, the hope, all those things are somehow still fundamentally part of who we are, which to me says that racial particularity, ethnic particularity, gender, sexuality, that those are all things that are ultimately made good that God gives us in order to help us understand who we are, to help others understand who God is. Um, and all those things are, are healed in a way, um, ordered towards something beautiful and wonderful. At the same time, though, they're also transfigured in a way, um, made new. They kind of bleed into different ways and have kind of mysterious new confounding implications that we don't actually understand and what means that in a sense that resurrected life is a life of continually discovering not knowing in fullness but actually a freedom to discover and live into the difference in a way that is beautiful and enriching and eternally gratifying in some way. So obviously the book is titled The Death of Race. And one of the big themes is that if we're to truly live, then race must die, which feels like a really profound claim. So what do you mean when you say that? And then I would love to hear if there's kind of a story that really gives you hope that that kind of points us or orients us in that direction. Yeah. So the title, I'm, I'm still kind of, I'm always a little, I love the title, but then it's also, it feels very 
like downer, <laughs> really depressing. <laughs> well, we're and, Christians. We can talk about death. Yeah, can, uh, yeah. yeah. But I think, I mean, in the, especially in this moment, I think the, the title came out in a certain moment where it kind of made sense. And then after we kind of made this turn in the in our political social moment where it felt like we maybe needed something more hopeful um and i think the book ends hopefully but by the death of race um really what i mean is the death of the system that determines what our bodies mean in ways that are dehumanizing so sometimes people get a little nervous because they say oh the death of race are you saying that my racial particularity that we have to somehow get past it. And right. so this is especially for people of color. Is the goal um, to be post-racial or to not right. see each other's yeah. color or, yeah. Yeah, and so I mean, so all in the, the beauty and the richness of this particularity and these particular lives that really have given life, they're kind of like, are you saying that, we, that that's the death? And I say, no, 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 like, that's, those are, that's particularity, that's story, that's bodiliness. Whereas race, I mean, if we want to push it a little bit, like race is really racism, right? It's that structure and those meanings of, of our bodies that get shaped over time that, that create lenses through which we can only see particular aspects of who we are, right? And so it's like this false narrative that's been created around color. Right, right. And so whether it's a black body means elicits fear for some, right? Or um, it only means athleticism or, you know, whatever, however we want to kind of put it. Um, so for me, the, the question of the death of race is really to say, what does it mean to live into a kind of faith that presses us towards seeing the full humanity, the full story, the full particularity of any given person that we've seen. And you might say, oh, well, like that just means like, oh, I just want to see you as you. And kind of like the epigraph that I, I, the, the, that I opened the book with towards for my kids to say, no, I want them to see the fullness of the stories that make them who they are. So it's not this hyper-individualism. Is that what yeah. you're pushing back against a yeah. little bit? Yeah, that we are all kind of connected to stories and our bodies are connected to stories. Our bodies do work in the world that we can't determine and can't control. Um, and that means that's part of who we are, you know, whether it's one's whiteness or whether it's one's blackness or one's ambiguity. We have responsibilities to people and we can't somehow escape how our bodies are seen in the world. But what we can do is transfigure the meaning of that site into different ways of thinking. So one of the great examples of this I've seen, um, I've seen a, a bunch of these, is um, a kind of former Duke alum, um, Hannah Adair Bonner. Um, so UMC pastor, was doing work in Central Texas. She's now at Arizona. But she really kind of over time found herself and her story among the black community and um, was doing activist work and in in, um, campus work when Sandra Bland died in prison or in jail and she and others began a vigil and they just started sitting outside the jail trying to say her name to kind of recall what her name was that something happened here and, and that's an example to me of the ways in which a person who's white begins to see themselves and the story of others as part of their story, right? And the wonderful thing is she will, she'll never say that she's not white. She's not getting past that, but she's really, in a sense, 
allowing her whiteness to enunciate something different in the world, which has meant a lot of danger for her. Um, she's become the mark of um, white supremacists in lots of ways. And, and what that means is in a way she's given up some of the privilege of her body for the sake of, of living with others. And I think when we see the kind of black community and Black Lives Matter, the kind of declaration that the fullness of our lives matter and simply disrupting the everyday kind of flow of traffic, right, or of shopping is a way of saying that actually we exist in the world. We take up space. Um, something's happening to us. Um, and again, what it's doing is it's bringing that story into the moment, right, into a mainstream, a kind of confronting the world with the reality of something that it wants to pretend isn't there. Um, and so I think in both of those ways, really the death of race means announcing that race has deathly consequences, which means bringing our bodies into places that are sometimes uncomfortable. You talk about kind of reimagining the way that we think about the cross mm-hmm. and how the cross can um, is not ultimately a death story, but the story of uh, the transformation of an object of death. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think in a way to kind of understand a little bit what I mean by that is to is to think a little bit about even the ongoing unfolding of how God works and redeems is that it's always through presence, right? I think especially as a theologian, as someone who loves ideas, I want to think that an idea changed the world. Mm-hmm. But really, God says, I want to be with you. You know, I want a tent. And I want to I want to walk with you. You know, God creates these kind of strange people, Israelites, to to remind the world that 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 something is there, something particular is there. And so, in a way, and then when we think of the word of the incarnation, the incarnation is this radical presence, right? Um, this radical enunciation of everything that God had already been saying through Israel's life, but now in a way where you smell you smell Him, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you see Him laugh, and you see the food that He doesn't like, and then now all of a sudden, this thing that you think is beautiful and amazing and has so much authority, and you're starting to think that maybe this is the fulfillment of, ev- of even more than what we could have imagined brings you into a tax collector's house, right? So again and again, we see presence kind of enunciating what it means that that God is here, that God has overcome these divides. And I think at the end of the day, that's what the cross represents, is that God is there even at death, right? That God is there even at torture, that God is there even in the moment of the state and religious institutions attempt to confine what it means to be holy or a citizen. And so ultimately, for us to participate in the cross is not to suffer, right? Um, That's actually not the end, but it is actually to become presences that disrupt, to become presences that enunciate that God is here and that God is disrupting all of these walls and these stories that we have been telling ourselves that justify exclusion, that that justify dehumanization, um, that justify the, the idea that maybe I shouldn't be talking in this moment or that I don't deserve more. Um, in my life. And so to me, that cross is just one point along this kind of trajectory of God's attempt to say simply, I'm with you and you're with one another. You've been listening to The Distillery. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. 
Our research and production team members are Garrett Mostowski and me, Otto Abrahams. If you like what you're hearing, let us know by rating us on iTunes, or better yet, share an episode with a friend. The Distillery is a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more great resources for Christian theology and ministry on The Thread at the URL thethread.ptsem.edu. Once again, that's thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.